Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. Hi, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here at St. Joseph's Winery in Canby uh, with Carl and Tara McKnight. It's January 22nd, 2019. Thank you both for joining us today. Uh, we're going to start you off by asking, why wine? was it my choice. It was my parents' choice. <laughs> <laughs> so they started the winery back in 1983 was the first year that we were bonded. Or it was the first year, it was the year that we were bonded as a winery. And uh, it wasn't such a popular thing back then. I was going to high school and I can remember um, we had a father-daughter dinner dance and fundraiser. You know, the good Catholics, they always have the wine and beer and everything. And I'm like, Dad, please don't tell anybody what we do. <laughs> but now it's kind of like... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I married into it. I got in the old-fashioned way. <laughs> nice. What were you doing before getting into wine? I was in the beer business for many, many years. And I met Tara at a, she worked for um, a distributor of fine Gallo wines and Miller beer. And I worked for Miller beer and I came out at a, for a sales meeting and we met and the rest is infamy. <laughs> <laughs> did you ever consider doing anything besides wine or did you ever expect to do something else? I actually started out at the university in engineering. Mm -hmm. and and thought after a couple classes like, oh no, I don't want to do this the rest of my life. <laughs> and um, you know, my parents were in the industry and back then it was, it was pretty fun. Mm -hmm. there, um, it still is a lot of fun, but there were not as many regulations and rules back then. Um, good people, uh, going to the state fair was like a reunion of all the winemakers in Oregon. Mm -hmm. You know, there were like 25, 30 wineries at the time. Uh, so then I just I pursued marketing and and uh, I wanted to get experience in on the sales end of it mm -hmm. and so I went to work for a distributor after college. And the plan was always to come back to St. Joseph. Yeah. So was that okay? Yeah. What, what was your parents' reaction to that? They loved it. Yeah, my brother was studying um, viticulture, mm -hmm. and so he still maintains the vineyards. And so I'm here with Carl helping run the winery. Yeah. Tell me about some of the kind of early memories you have. You talk about being fun in the, in the 80s uh, as, a, as a child in the wine industry. Tell me about some of the early memories you have. Uh... Uh, my brother was not 21, and we would go to festivals, and he'd be in the back opening bottles as fast <laughs> as we could, be, at, like at the Newport Wine and Seafood Festival. Um, I had a, a little company car, a Dodge Colt, a little hatchback, and um, they called me. Uh, the festival was usually Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and uh, they said, bring more wine! So I loaded up that little Dodge Colt. It was just bottoming, bottoming out, 
and I think I had like 20 cases of wine jammed in there and drove to Newport on Friday night <laughs> <laughs> for the rest of the weekend. And it was just bustling times, mm -hmm. um, you know, small intimate tasting rooms and uh, we started uh, the first grape stomping festival in Oregon and we had a it, we made it a harvest themed event and, and my father wanted it to be very traditional and so you have to have um, uh, a young maiden stomp grapes mm -hmm. and so nobody wanted to do it in the crowd and so he grabbed me so I was the grape stomper for quite a few years <laughs> and now you know it's so popular that um, people clamor to do it so <laughs> but yeah fun festivals and good times sure. you didn't have a lot of neighbors around here at least doing other wine as well so did you have a lot of experience going to other other wineries other tasting rooms at the time no um, it was mostly meeting people at um, festivals mm -hmm. and at fairs mm -hmm. and you know going out to dinner after events um, long hours I do have a memory of when we first started, we planted back in 78 and 79, and we wanted to mar start making wine right away. Well, we had to wait for our grapes to be mature, so that took, you know, three, four years for a baby crop to come on. So in the interim, uh, you know, no internet at this time, and we're just looking in the phone book, calling friends in Lodi, people down in Southern Oregon, you know, who's got grapes to sell us? Because there wasn't that much production around here for us to purchase grapes yet. Um, we still have a relationship with Roger Lane. He delivered this last year. We get Merlot and Cabernet from him. But I can remember driving down in this big flatbed truck with wooden totes, so not lined, and going to Lodi, and the truck would be just oozing grape juice all the way <laughs> It was very concentrated fruit <laughs> <laughs> that was pressed those years. <laughs> yeah. So, Carl, tell me a little bit about your sort of uh, impressions uh, as you, you came from beer into wine. Uh, what were your impressions? What, what made you interested in pursuing it? <laughs> How corporate we are. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. What did make, well, we've been married 26 years, so that would be the reason I got into it. Um, and we first, we were living, um, we met down here, but then I moved to Seattle. So we lived in Seattle for our first 10 or 12 years. Mm -hmm. And we would drive down on vacation to for the harvest and the grape stomping and the festivals. And we would work the festivals on the weekend and drive back up. And I thought, what a crazy life this is. <laughs> and I was used to, it's a different scale of things when you work for a large Fortune 500 company and I don't know if we're in the Canby 500. <laughs> so different, a different scale and just a, a totally different life, mm -hmm. and in a, in, a, in a very good way. What was it about it? Was there something specific that attracted you? Was it working with your hands? Was it being outside? Was there something that kind of made it, made it palatable to you? So my earliest memories are driving down to Newport. No, actually, Astoria, and Tara was working the festival, and I am trying to convince her that I'm the right person. <laughs> so I drove down to Astoria and I was amazed that I had was not used to wine. I grew up in Florida, so there's not the wine culture that it is out here. 
and I couldn't believe that people would go in 25 to 30 degree raining weather to this festival and have such a great time in a tent. <laughs> With the wind blowing. <laughs> With the wind blowing, and that was the highlight for the, the year. And I thought, this is a, this is a good thing. And just th that people are so proud to be able to grow something and then make something and then have people enjoy it, which is a, a nice way of life. So as you started working more at St. Joseph's here, how did you sort of develop your roles and what you want, what you needed to do, what you wanted to do, and, and kind of integrate into the into the team here? That's kind of for both of you. Well, when we lived in Seattle, we were exposed to a lot of uh, Eastern Washington fruit, mm -hmm. um, and coming back down here, it was Pinot Noir. We love Pinot, um, and, and this is an estate winery. But one of the, and, and my parents were very welcoming and they wanted us to come and help with the business. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we couldn't just walk in and, you know, take over the business. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't our intention either. But we did want some autonomy and uh, we brought a little bit of diversity and we have our own brand mm -hmm. that we started. Mm -hmm. Just so that, um, you know, it's kind of hard to, work with your parents and live so close by to your parents sometimes. Um, <clears throat> so uh, that gives us our own little outlet mm -hmm. to say, so to say. What about you, Carl? What, did your, did your, what kind of role did you fill as you started? Uh... It's so for, uh, it was know, a long time ago now, 15 or so years ago, we were Kept, we were still living in Seattle. We came down one Thanksgiving, and I had just taken a new job, um, and we were going to move to Phoenix, where it's nice and sunny. And it was Thanksgiving weekend, so the weather's a little moist and chilly. And we were here, and it's Thanksgiving weekend, so the tasting room's busy. And our kids were little, and we were thinking, gosh, if we move to Arizona, nobody ever moves back from Arizona. <laughs> Once they go down, they never come back. And we had this chance to come in and take over a family business or be the next generation of family business, which doesn't happen that often in America, and certainly not in the wine business. So for us, it was a drastic kind of decision, and it took us three or four years to make it happen. Mm -hmm. And all along, her parents were in their 60s then and always hardworking. And so Tara knows how to organize things and keep things in line, and my job was more marketing mm -hmm. based mm -hmm. and so that was a good fit and then we figured somebody ought to know something about wine so one of us has to go to wine making school a viticulture school which ended up being me and so the the roles kind of evolved as it started that i was joseph's lackey in the cellar and you know he had to show me what a hose was and a tank was and all that good stuff and then Tara organized the tasting rooms and it's just kind of evolved. Mm -hmm. And we're a small operation, so we each wear multiple hats every day. Of course. Of course. And it's a, an interesting life. So. Where, did you, where did you go for uh, winemaking school? So I, I did, at first I did, uh, while I was still working a corporate life, I did online at UC Davis mm -hmm. to learn all the basics. I did that for a year. And then after I left corporate life, I went to Chemeketa for the two-year winemaking program mm -hmm. and then the one-year viticulture program. And I think, you know, bulk 
or a, a vast amount of Oregon winemakers have gone through the program. It's a great program. Mm -hmm. um, aside having to take college chemistry again, it was really good. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned the, the, other, the second label, Pheasant, Pheasant Run. Now tell us about sort of how and why and that started, uh, how you got it off the ground and, and sort of what your uh, goals were w with it. You can answer that. Well, as Tara mentioned, when we lived in Seattle and it's predominantly what people are drinking are Eastern Washington, big jammy reds, which is the opposite of what's grown down here. So bigger fruit, lower acid. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, it's a nice thing to have in the wintertime. And it's also a, a product that her, her parents and particularly her dad do not care for the new world style. And here we're more old school. And when we got into the business, we had run our own businesses. So we wanted to do some things a little bit different from the family. Mm -hmm. And we had for years and years driven by the old bank building in Aurora and looked at it and said, man, someday we're gonna throw all our money away and restore an old building. <laughs> and when we decided to open a tasting room because we had figured early on that it's not the right message. So here everything is grown and made on the property and what we're doing is bringing in fruit mm -hmm. and making it. We thought we'd better do something different. So. We were looking in Carlton and other places to put in a tasting room, and the people that had the bank building actually called us in this window and said, hey, we're gonna sell this building. We know you like it. What do you think? And we were like, oh, that's unbelievable. <laughs> so we bought it the 1st of July and opened the tasting room the end of July. Wow. <laughs> and we had been dappling and making. Yeah, we had been had making the wine for a couple of years and it was just sitting yeah. here. So. We're looking for what was the response then when you opened? Great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've been there eight and a half years and it's yeah. been nice. It's it's been kind of like a hangout for a lot of local people and a lot of people that uh, find us mm -hmm. become big fans mm -hmm. and We've had really, really great response. Yeah. So you mentioned the kind of different kinds of, uh, of wines you're making there. Tell us a little bit about how you choose and what you make and what, kind of what your favorites are of, of what's going on there. We kind of have a theme over there. It's an old bank building and there are quite a few mishaps that happen there. And, <laughs> um, our, our Lots best of wealth. And yes, <laughs> our best seller is Bank Robber Red, and there's this a true story that a lady that worked at the bank took the town's money to win back her husband, <laughs> and it's a true true story. Did it work? It did work <laughs> for a while, <laughs> and then he decided she didn't have enough money. <laughs> and also the the bankers, the uh, the people that owned the bank absconded with the money. This is another story, um, and they embezzled all the money. So of course. We have a nice couple of blends that are embezzler and bank robber red. But one of the things that her dad here is a traditionalist and he likes 100% Chardonnay and 100% this. And I went to winemaking school and was taught, you know, a little bit of this and a little bit of that can really enhance. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons it started was, hey, can I do this little batch of this? Mm -hmm. And I want to add 5% Riesling to my Pinot Gris. Mm -hmm. I want to bring out some other flavors. And that's how it's been. So at here, 
we're still doing um, very specific varietals, and there we're doing a lot of blends, both white and red, and try to do some nuances. Sure. Thank you. So we were talking about um, starting Pheasant Run. I'm curious, um, what is it? What were the sort of the challenges of getting it off the ground? And what were the most exciting parts of, of having your own having your own label? Well, the building. Yeah, the building restoring an old building that was built in 1905 is, oh, and we had had restored an old house in Seattle, so we sort of thought we knew what we were doing. And when just to do the floors, it was um, eight 50-pound bags of sawdust, just to do the floor. So it was a little bit of, of work. And then when we did, so this has been almost 10 years ago. Uh, the thought of a tasting room not attached to a vineyard was still pretty new. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so the challenge of what the heck is this? How do you get people? And, you know, St. Joseph's is off uh, the beaten path and then Aurora probably even more. <laughs> so just the, that whole getting the word out. Mm -hmm. And how did you go about that? How did, how did you go out and find customers? You know, that's a... Good question. I don't think we had any customers for a year. <laughs> we were open Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and we were working and maybe one person would come in because they wanted to check out the building. <laughs> they thought it was a cute building. And then we thought, oh, we do not want to be open every day like this anymore. And so then we, we thought, let's do something for the community. And we started having music and food and fairly priced wines on first Fridays. And they've been super popular for us. Um, and it's kind of like a gathering spot yeah. now. Yeah. And we got involved in the Aurora community. So they have concerts in the park and we have the Winebago. It's our <laughs> wine serving vehicle that goes to the park and serves. Yep. And then we started the Aurora Wine and Chocolate Walk, which will now be the eighth year. Mm -hmm. And we brought other wineries to town for a charity event the first weekend of December. And that has done very well. So last year we probably had 400 people attend. Wow. And we've raised, I don't know, almost 8,000 for Habitat. Oh, really cool. And that's a, that was a good way to do things that a little bit different. And then just having a different type of wine in an area where that's dominated by Pinot is also mm -hmm. sort of a, a calling card. Mm -hmm. And we refer back and forth too. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. sure. And we have a nice marketing. Uh, the Cascade Foothills. Cascade sure. Foothills Wine Group. So that's, that's helped everyone in the group to, to be a part of that and refer to each other. Because you mentioned kind of being off the beaten path over here, uh, other side of the freeway, not really known for wine over here, not a lot, not as many. Uh, so with the Cascade Foothills, what is it you're focusing on? Are you trying to draw people to the area? Are you trying to draw people who are already here and make them make them aware of wine? Or um, Cascade Foothills is this growing area mm -hmm. that spans from pretty much Oregon City to Highway 20. Is it Highway 20 down? Oh, wow. Paluso is is the. Um, Almsville wow, is, okay. is the furthest that it goes. Um, it's mainly a marketing coalition, mm -hmm. and we we pool monies and so we can buy a bigger ad in the in the thing and get people out here. 
to this area. Um, a lot, a lot of grapes are grown in this area. There aren't that many wineries, but a lot of grapes are provided to other wineries in the state of Oregon from this area. Um, and our main focus, yes, was to bring people out to these mom and pop wineries that you can still go to and behind the counter is probably the winemaker slash owner slash dish boy. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, we wanted to let people know that off the beaten path there are some really nice little gems. And, sure. Yeah. Yeah, and her parents had been part of it, so it was Joe Dobbs Sr. Mm -hmm. and a few other folks, and it was the East Valley Wine Group for many, many years, and then was sort of a second generation. Well, for us and some other newer folks, it was about rebranding to something that sounds better, so Cascade Foothills. And then we were lucky enough to get some state-supported money to do a passport. Mm -hmm. And if all the wineries have $100 to spend or $1,000 to spend, that's not much. But if you have 15 guys all spending $1,000 on one project, mm -hmm. that's pretty good. What have you noticed in the last, uh, say, 10 years in terms of, are you noticing a lot more traffic from out of the area? Are you noticing a, an, an effect based on all this? Yes, uh, there are more lodging opportunities in our area, and so people are coming and making a little weekend out of, you know, this area. Mm -hmm. um, we have more restaurants popping up, so that always helps. <laughs> yeah, people are into wine touring, and they want to pick a destination and, you know, pick a couple places to go. We've got some great um, farms out here, flower farms in particular. Uh, Wooden Shoe has started their own winery and they have the tulip fields. Um, Swan Island Dahlia got voted as one of the top 100 best places in Oregon um, for 2019, as did we, but they got number four. <laughs> They're huge, yeah. Um, so there, it, it is, there are lots of things to do in our area that are more agri- Agritourism, mm -hmm. like not just wine. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. how do you balance your work between Pheasant Run and, and St. Joseph's? St. Joseph's. <laughs> ah, that's pretty easy then. Okay. <laughs> yeah. We've decided to divide and conquer. We've so, got a great staff yeah. that supports us, and um, pretty much you either work there or you work here. Okay. Yeah. And for us as a married couple, it's kind of good not to work together every single day. <laughs> <laughs> and how'd you come up with the name, Feather Run? So we, we stole it from her parents. So uh, back in the 80s, her dad would make uh, a lot of wine. And if he didn't have a sales plan for it, he would sell a container to the East Coast or California, or it was in Ralph's grocery stores in California for many years under the pheasant run label mm -hmm. and when we decided to do that you have to go be bonded and have TTB clearance and you need some trademarks and this and that and they weren't using the name we were like oh we could avoid all of this hassle if we just take this name because we owned all the rights and everything else sure because it wasn't sold in Oregon sure so yeah. it was new for and it hadn't been used in many years yeah. and so we were fortunate enough to do that and it's also the name of one of the original vineyards which happens to be across the street, and that's fruit that we sell to other wineries, and it's also the fruit that we started to make for some of the white wines at Pheasant Run. Sure. Yeah. Um, what advice would you guys have for someone who wanted to enter the wine industry, say, today? 
you're crazy. <laughs> uh, it's, we are so, so lucky to have this fall into our laps um, because I think you need a lot of capital to start a winery these days. I don't even know how much money you need, but I think it's a lot. <laughs> so my mom always said, if you want to make a little bit of money, you got to start out with a lot of money <laughs> in the wine industry. Um, and then the other thing she always says is uh, a winery does not need a master, it needs servants. <laughs> so you're basically, you know, you're always working, but you gotta love it. And what's, what's not to love in this industry? It's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, we're, we're very fortunate to be able to have a family business to help it's the, which was already very solid mm -hmm. to just tweak and help grow. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't happen that often. And with the, you know, so when we, even when we got into the business only 10 years ago, there were two, let's say there were 200 wineries. So now there's 700 wineries in Oregon that the field keeps getting split, 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 but the distribution opportunities, and particularly if you're, it's really easy to make nice wine but it's really hard to sell nice wine because everybody in Oregon makes nice wine. So there's everybody's making five wines. So you got twenty-five thousand wines to choose from. So to to get out of the pack can be, I think, a little bit challenging, even for us. And particularly with the places that sell wine being smaller in number. So mm -hmm. Safeway and Albertsons are one decision maker. Fred Meyer, which was everybody's best customer, that decision is made in Cincinnati now. Mm. So they, instead of having 200 Oregon wines, they have 20. Mm -hmm. So that's the hard part of the industry is how to, how to get your, get wine, your to market. wine to market. And even for us, so we're, we were named one of the top 100 destinations in Oregon. Even we struggle with our distributor mm -hmm. with why do we need to sell your wine? I have Joe Smith's wine. And the big guys are getting bigger, and that's a that's a challenge for the industry. Yeah. What do you see as the possible solutions to that, or the possible what, what's going what that's going to cause? The changes that's going to cause? I don't know because even when you go to a restaurant, um, you know they have certain profit margins that they need to have, and it's really hard to spend. Part of our philosophy. Yeah, it's it's hard um, to spend, you know, twelve, fifteen dollars for a glass of wine. Mm -hmm. um, I think until, well, maybe it's never going to happen. But Oregon needs to have a big guy to have a really good affordable price point um, to get people into supporting Oregon wines in their restaurants mm -hmm. you know sure. let's talk about Oregon then as long as we're on that topic uh, where do you see the future of Oregon wine obviously you talk about the changes you've seen even in the short time you since you've owned uh, what do you see in the next 10 15 years I see nothing but upside for Oregon wines yeah it's they're just so different they're eclectic um, we've got so many different styles of winemaking in this state. Mm -hmm. um, I think people are noticing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
they know what France tastes like, they know what California tastes like, and Chile and Argentina and Oregon is kind of like, ooh, you know, <laughs> all different. Yeah, one of the things that makes Oregon great is really we have really high acid in the wines. Mm -hmm. We don't have to add the acid, um, which makes the wines distinctive. It cuts through the fat and food. It adds a little bit of flash. And we have a lot of people like us that have, we have 50 acres of grapes. Well, that sounds like a lot in California, but people would laugh at us. <laughs> and so we have a lot of small producers making nice wines, which is tremendous upside. Mm -hmm. And if the climate gets warmer um, and the Pinot Noir gets darker, and a little bit more alcohol, that's not gonna hurt ours. It's probably gonna open a window for some other varietals as well. So, and the tourism thing, it's, it's, it's big. It's a beautiful spot in the world. Yep. <laughs> yeah, visit, visit, don't stay, right? Yeah, yeah. What are some of the varietals you're working with that, that particularly excite you? So we have, uh, we have Syrah here that we've had for about 20 years. Mm -hmm. And in the last few years, because we've had warmer weather, our Syrah is darker than the Walla Walla Syrah I brought in. Wow. Which, it's Willamette Valley Syrah, so we're pleasantly surprised. And, you know, is that helpful for the global world? Well, it's helpful for that part in the vineyard, I can tell you that. <laughs> and then we also have done Gamay, and these are cuttings that I did at Viticulture School, and we've had those for about six years now across the way. And so it's, uh, Pinot Noir is great, and it's beautiful, and sometimes people want something a little bit more fruit forward, a little less um, finesse. Mm -hmm. And so both of those kind of fit the boat. And we also have been making Gewürztraminer since Joe uh, planted Gewürztraminer and Chardonnay, and those are both kind of back in vogue <laughs> in Oregon, and they're both very aromatic and they're both clean. And it's nice to know that the things that Joe did 40 years ago are still popular today. What about the future for you guys more personally? What about the future of St. Joseph's and a Pheasant Run? What do you see slash hope for the next 5, 10, 15 years? Huh. We're hoping that Kendall Jackson guy is going to return our call. <laughs> <I'm just kidding>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We have uh, one of our sons is interested, mm -hmm. so we'll see how that goes. Mm -hmm. The other one is too smart. <laughs> yeah, so the one that has worked here at the winery for five years is not interesting. The one that has goofed off is interesting, so we'll see. Well, we have two boys in college, and uh, we don't know what will happen. We have we'll a, just let it happen how it happens. Yeah. She feels that she, was, she and her brother were pushed into a family business, and she doesn't, we don't want to make our kids feel like they have to do a family business. Mm -hmm. However, if they choose to be involved, that's great too. Sure. We'll be doing cartwheels. <laughs> what are some of the, as you look forward, we talked about kind of the future, what are some of the challenges either for, you kind of mentioned uh, consolidation and all of that, uh, challenges for the industry in general, what are the obstacles uh, besides it, uh, besides uh, Sorry, I'm start I'm tongue-tied. What are some of the challenges you see for the Oregon industry as, as you look down the road, uh, besides consolidation? Are there others on the horizon, the things that concern you? Well, I think she, she touched on, Tara touched on the pricing dynamic. Mm -hmm. So if you're a, so we're 700 wineries and most of us are smaller scale, so we're producing five or 10 or 20,000 cases. And to be affordable so that you or your crew can buy a $15 bottle of wine, 
it's very difficult for a winery to have all the equipment and the marketing and the salespeople mm -hmm. and make 20,000 cases or whatever of $15 wine. Mm -hmm. And if you're buying it for $15 in a store, that means it's going to be $15 in a bar or a restaurant. And people don't spend that much. So the one thing that has happened to us, the one thing that's happened with microbrews is that the restaurant world has really pushed to have a lot of microbrews. You can go into any restaurant in the Northwest and there's five or six or seven local items on tap. Mm -hmm. And it could be hyper-local, but what you don't find are six Budweiser and six Miller Lite taps. Mm -hmm. However, if you go to a restaurant and you look at the wine list, it's the opposite. And that's, that's because wine is, um, it's different because we're growing the grapes in, in Oregon because we're smaller farmers and because we're paying our labor 12 something an hour in the vineyards, we can't price our wines like in Chile where the, the field workers making $12 a month mm -hmm. and here we're making $12 sure. an hour. Sure. So that dynamic um, is tough on the Oregon industry, which is all premium. So that'll be a, a hurdle for the future, and then particularly with minimum wage. Sure. What is the minimum wage? It's not it's 13-something, isn't it? Depends on where you are now. Yeah, yeah, it depends. So that's that's something for the future, and that's a challenge, as well as the uh, challenge of vineyard workers coming from south of the border, mm -hmm. which any farming is a challenge for the future. Sure. All right. Well, that's all the questions that I have. Uh, is there anything I should have asked that I didn't? Any any final thoughts here that I did we didn't touch on? No. Hopes, no. dreams, concerns. <laughs> no. What? Interesting. Well, we'll cut all that out. Don't worry. <laughs> Thank you both so much for your Thank time. You Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.